Welcome to the Corecast, where we interview Jewish leaders and discuss issues relevant to the Jewish community in Canada and around the world. I'm your host, Richard Rabkin. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Corecast. I am your host, Richard Rabkin. I have with me Rabbi Dr. Rafi Cashman, who is the head of school of Nitivot HaTorah. Welcome, Rabbi Dr. Cashman. Thank you very much for having me. Do I need to call you Rabbi Doctor the whole time? What should I... <laughs> As you wish. Okay. Um, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself first, about your, your background, where you grew up, schooling, and such. Sure. Um, I grew up in Toronto, born and bred. I uh, went to Bialik for elementary school, um, learned a little bit of Yiddish, mm. went to uh, went to Chadford High School, spent a year in Israel in Yeshiva after high school. Four years at the University of Toronto, history and political science, which I had a great experience. I loved it. Spent my summers learning and then decided to learn afterwards. After I graduated, I went back to Israel and learned for four years there. And then came back to Toronto for four years after that. I taught Orchaim halftime and learned halftime. And then moved to Chat as a Judaic studies teacher. Um, I did my master's sort of at the transition point, master's in education at the transition point between the two schools. I then did a doctorate in education at the University of Toronto at the transition between chat and uh, becoming a principal at Associated at the middle school, which was a fabulous experience, a great learning experience for me. Uh, and um, I did I worked for two years as a consultant for a company in California, which was gave me a, a breadth of perspective on education and uh, formal and informal education across North America. I met a lot of wonderful, interesting people through that experience. And then about three years ago, I came here. Um, I started, signed, I started two years, this is my third year, I should say. And it's been extraordinary. I knew from the very first conversation I had with a board member here that this would be a really great place for my first experience as head of school. Um, and it's been wonderful. So thank God. So for those of the listeners that may not know, can you describe what Netivo is? Sure. Netivot is a Orthodox school that serves a wide, wide part of the Orthodox community in Toronto, which often or more conventionally called modern Orthodox, although that in itself has its own complicated pedigree as a, as a term that's used. Uh, the basic assumptions are people are Shomer Shabbos and Shomer Kashras. Um, there are other expectations, of course, in a school, but those are the main drivers in terms of like a a basic assumption about how people live their religious lives. Um, Torah Israel Derech Eretz is the tagline. I think Israel is a very, very big part of the identity of the school and, and uh, religious Zionism. So it's not just the state of Israel as a secular entity, but Israel as a having religious value and purpose, as Rav Soloveitchik explained in Kol Dodi Dofek, I think is, is absolutely core to the school. Uh, uh, sort of a... a a consequence of that is its commitment to teaching in Ivrit and modern Hebrew language. Torah as a the you know the overriding value of which the of this school and the values of the school are based. Um, that's for that's a you know not just what we do half the day, but how we live our lives, and what we think about in terms of the religious experience of our kids. Um, and it's I think we see ourselves as a community. It's not just a place where kids come to school, but parents feel very connected. Um, and it's, I think, geographically extremely diverse and, uh, and, and really sees itself as serving a very broad spectrum of, uh, of, of orthodox 
practitioners in Toronto. So take us back to, I guess it was three years ago when you assumed the leadership role here. So what were some of the things that you had on your agenda that you wanted to implement? And, and as you look back here on these three years, what were some of the successes and I guess some of the challenges? Um, so I think from the outset, with one, I think my, my two guiding, let's say, lights were, uh, were Jim Collins and his Good to Great work. If you've read that, and uh, and Patrick Lencioni um, and his work on building great teams, so I realized that to to function in a school as large as ours, we have almost 700 kids. At the time we had about 620. Um, to function in a school as large as ours, we need both the right people in the right seats, um, leading, driving the bus, as they say. Um, we needed uh, to. That meant some people, you know. We need to hire some new people and make some change. We need to change some people's roles to meet their specific skill sets. And we need to create a team, a leadership team, that had that could see the, the school as a whole, sort of reducing silos that had that had developed and often developed naturally in, in organizations, in schools in particular. And using that team, both building a culture for that team, a set of values for that team, and how that uh, how that team would function. As, as leading towards the values and the mission and vision of the school as a whole. And so last two years have been a lot of that work, plus building the underlying systems for what allows a large educational institution to function well. So um, in small institutions, you can have a lot of face-to-face -face time between everyone who's involved in the organization. The larger organizations become, and, and especially in educational institutions where teachers have a lot of time in their classrooms separate from other practitioners, meaning other teachers or uh, leadership in the school, you have to build a, a strong culture. And you need, this, you need a strong leadership team to build a strong culture in the school. And the first thing you need are healthy systems that function well. That's all the logistics and management of the school. And that needs to be built up in, in a way that stopped the grind and stopped the, you know, the, the always you know, rethinking and, and do you remember this and, and um, where do I go for that? Um, clear policies and procedures, that whole system needed to be sort of um, in, improved and brought up to speed. I think we're, we're certainly, there's lots of, there's always details of improvement, but I think we're in a very healthy place there on both of those areas. And, uh, and so now we're at the place of really looking forward. Um, it's looking forward to um, moving from good to great in the quality um, uh, of education. There's, there are great pockets, there are good pockets, but we need the entire system to be outstanding. Um, and and the and I think that's that's an overall educational vision, and then also broadly, like I said at the beginning, Torah and Ruchniut are at the core of why we exist, and that is a that evolves over time because our 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 student body changes and and our culture around us changes, and so that and there's not like an obvious best practice of what that looks like, and so we're. We're very, we're very mindful and focused on the administrative team on those two pillars. How do we think about educational excellence and best practice and creating the most outstanding experience for our kids that meets each of the individual needs as much as, as much as we possibly can and the diverse experiences that allow education to be rich and meaningful. And at the same time, making sure there's a deep, thoughtful, responsive and creative um, Torah and Ruchniut happening in the school so our kids are excited about about learning about bracha about davening, and so they feel connected to it, um, and and then bringing their families in because of course there's a family role in that in a very meaningful way. 
Um, and that's complex work. The, the, some of it's complex because it's just, you know, multivariant. Some of it's complex because the path is not obvious. And so that's, that's sort of been our, say, our main focus now and over the next few years. And what about some challenges? I mean, I guess not only in, in your transition, but I imagine the role of head of school is a, is, is a big role. There's a lot of pressure. Um, what are some of the, those challenges that you face? How do you deal with them in a way that you're, you're comfortable sharing? There are, it's hard to put in a box. There's like very different kinds of challenges. There's 30,000 foot challenges like Toronto's an expensive place to live. Tuition is is a challenge for everybody. And so how do we make sure the school is sustainable over a long period of time? Year to year for sure, but over a long period of time to make sure we're being we're being fiscally responsible. Um, we are meeting we're maximizing our resources and um, and at the same time trying to offer an extraordinary experience to our kids and our families. So like that's like the thirty thousand foot question. And that it manifests year to year with a lot of work that goes into fundraising and trying to get community support. Um, and we have wonderful donors and supporters of the school. We're very, I think we're, we are particularly privileged that way. And, and that in some ways makes it, makes it, makes the job a lot easier, but that's, that's a lot of work and it requires a lot of um, careful planning and thinking. There's different kinds of like more, more more narrow challenges. I deal with this less, although probably in in my role because I'm not doing, I don't do the day to day um, supervision of of teachers and students. Um, I oversee, let's call it both sides of the school: the business development, admissions, and marketing offices, as well as the educational side of the school. Which of course, is its biggest and the purpose it exists, but it need both need oversight. And so, I have principals, vice vice principal, and and coordinators who who do the day-to-day -day work. But in, even so, there are, you know, kids are complicated. Kids as they grow are complicated. Parents who are deeply emotionally invested with their kids as they should be. It means it means making good decisions is, is, is hard because our emotions are very wrapped up in the kind of how we want to see our children, what we want for them, um, coming to terms with the challenges that they face, how to support them properly. I think each of us sees this as parents, and the both the privilege and challenge of being an educator is being part of that journey with parents, helping them see things without this with an emotional investment because we care about their kids. Teaching is a caring profession, and at the same time, we're, we're a step removed from parents and allows us to use our professional knowledge to be able to to guide them. <clears throat> and those can be very emotionally laden conversations, and and they're hard, um, and they're satisfying, and could be wonderful, and you see change over time and growth, and that's. The most satisfying thing as an educator, and yet it is also um, it's a heavy burden to carry, um, and that can be that can be a challenge. So those are like two very very different kinds of um, of of things I think about, um, and and then there's the trying to make sure that as the 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 person most responsible for the longer term vision of the school. So if I'm not responsible for day to day, how far out am I looking um, at how we can move our program forward, how we can be innovative, who we need to hire in order, or what kind of roles we need to have in order to do that, that again, are within the, the appropriate constraints that are uh, you know, responsible. And, and that is both exciting and exhilarating and also the constant preoccupation that, that anyone who's responsible for something has to have if they're gonna you know, take it seriously and do it well.
So in terms of long-term vision, what is it that it appears that from an outsider's perspective, such as mine, that NetDevote is doing something right, at least in the fact that from what I hear, enrollment is up. And I know that when we met a few years ago, when you were an associate and I came in to, to speak to the uh, to the students there from a COR perspective. So you shared some of the challenges that they were having, uh, I guess, from an enrollment perspective. So what is, I guess this is kind of a two-part question, what is it that NITIVOTE is doing right um, in that enrollment seems to be increasing? And what do you see as the landscape in general in terms of Toronto itself and why some schools, we don't need to name any names, but some schools enrollment is decreasing and some it's increasing? Um, I want to be careful not to comment on not the what's happening in other schools, as you said. I think we should. That, that's a bit harder question to answer. Um, I think there's always there are cycles of schools. Sometimes for reasons that are clearer. Sometimes for reasons of status or popularity, they're not necessary necessarily correlated to anything particular a school does. So that's sort of like the gloss on all of this. I, that doesn't mean I think we are doing things right. I mean I think. We try to be good communicators and um, and supportive of kids and parents, um, take our work really seriously and constantly aiming towards improvement. I think that ethic is one that is vital for any educational institution and being um, and is important as a as a metric for a sort of overall like overall success. I mean, it might not show in the moment, but it, it's sort of an indicator um, and what accounts for particular success? I would hope it's because we're good, we're doing a, a good job and a really good job with our students meeting their needs, keeping um, um, educating them well, like all the sort of the basics of school is supposed to do, but hopefully more because they they leave happy and they um, and the parents feel positive about the interaction and interactions and experience they've had that kids are graduating in a place where where they would have hoped. I hope those are all true. I believe they are, and I think I mean I hope that's, that accounts for uh, a big part of why people are, are making the choice to be here. Um, I think, and I, I don't just say this. I mean, I've worked in a whole bunch. Uh, I, I'm in general very, very enamored by the amount of work and intensity with which people, teachers, put into their into their jobs, no matter which of the schools I've been. And I'd say that's pretty, on, on balance, that's the case. I think one of the things that always is apprehensive for a new administrator, a new educational leader coming into the institution, is how will the staff respond to me or my ideas? And you know, lots of books about, you know, about culture change and the challenges of, of, uh, of teachers in the process of change. And I would say, interestingly, if there's one thing I can say, it's almost consistently the case here, and is definitely the case with the staff that we have, you know, in 2019, 2020, is that we, is there, I, don't feel the drag of negative voices. I don't feel like there's a any feeling of, of you know pushing back against the desire for change or improvement. On the contrary, people, have, in my experience, have, are positive and responsive and interested. They want to grow. They thrive on the opportunity to learn more and be better. Uh, and uh, and I feel very grateful for that. I mean, that's a wonderful you know, sort of grounding in which to be able to do this kind of work. The patience is in the process. Is in the pace of implementation. I always want more faster, you know, but that's okay. Like that's for that, I have tremendous patience um, because people need the time and support to be able to make 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 progress. 
but that they're open and want to learn and willing to experiment and try new things, I think is, I think is fabulous. Um, and I think that, that, that's an intangible that points to, I think, why we have an institution that people feel positively about, because they really want to do better and do more for the kids. Okay, and no comments on general demographic changes in the city, um, whether, you know, I just, I, I remember the school that I went to when I grew up, right, so it was, I, I think, more customary for kids to go to the type of Jewish school that I went to, but I think that people um, now, perhaps there's less of, uh, I don't want to say value, but perhaps it's related to tuition, um, which we should talk about next, but but do you have any general reflections on kind of the state of Toronto and demographic changes and, and a, perhaps less of a value in, in certain sectors of, of Jewish education? It's a hard question to answer with good data. Like, I, I mean, I know that there are fewer kids in Jewish day schools in Toronto overall than there were, I think it was whatever, 10 or 15 years ago. What... How do we, how does one account for that? Like, is that is that a change in the number of Jewish families, Jewish families who can afford it, ones who are choosing it? Like, I don't, I, that's, that is a stage beyond what I know, and probably the CJ or Dan Held are good people to ask those questions to. I mean, you see you see at least some indication that maybe there's more appetite when you see the reduction in tuition at chat and, you know, a large jump in, in, uh, in enrollment. I don't know that that reflects necessarily in the Orthodox community, where there's generally much, you know, pretty close to 100% um, penetration of families who are going to send their kids to school. I think that what I can maybe comment on a little bit more is I, I do have some apprehension. If I'm like, what are my five and 10 year worries? Is that, um, is that Toronto's an expensive place to live. People, young families have to buy houses, even like the new houses, the townhouses they're building up here. So let's say they're 800,000 or a million dollars and that's considered affordable, which is a bit crazy, but that's, that's affordable. There's only so much once you've taken on a mortgage like that and have to function just as a basic, you know, to function basically in Toronto. There's only so much money you're going to be able to have for tuition afterwards, which just means the amount of money we have to fundraise either goes up or we cut services. And like, you know, one is obviously more palatable, but there's also a, there's a fundraising ceiling. It's not like there's just money out there and people can give. So, um, so that's sort of my longer term worry about, you know, what will happen? Will people then choose to leave to Toronto? Will more families make Aliyah because that's more affordable? Will they move to smaller American towns if they have the option, like Cleveland or Pittsburgh, Detroit, which are not so far from Toronto, have a Jewish infrastructure, and much cheaper living? Um, I don't know the answer to those questions. There's sort of like little bits of data on the horizon that maybe that's happening, but it's not. None of it's clear yet, and it's certainly not. Um, it's certainly you know small that it's not necessarily indicator of anything. But I think it's a real concern. So, I mean, I know my shul, we, uh, I think around five or six families moved uh, within the past year to Cleveland or Miami, Detroit, uh, other cities like that. So, so anecdotally, you know, I've observed it. So any other comments you have about tuition, tuition crisis, as they say, um, mm -hmm. or ways that you're able to, to deal with and navigate it? Um, some of it is trying to be creative, like we have a loan fund that we've created here. I don't know if any other schools have it, but that's been somewhat helpful. So it allows families to have a bridge to be able to afford more tuition um, and be able to pay it back over a longer period of time. Um, 
and and that both helps us and helps them. It helps on the dignity side, it helps on the affordability side. And we've had some generous donors who helped us with that. That's a small intervention, but one that, you know, it's not always a, the biggest interventions that matter. It's sometimes smaller, you know, cumulative smaller ones. So basically, just so I understand that, you're saying you take X thousand dollars and instead of paying it this year, but you have 10 or... Yeah, you have a longer period of time to pay it out. And you also, in small, in small installments, that, that feel less burdensome. And because part of it you're getting a lump sum back is, you know, in your tax return, it allows you to make a one-time larger payment. Uh-huh. Um, and so it becomes, you know, affordable by not, you know, it's, it's not all expected this year, but it allows you to sort of spread it out in a way that becomes more, more sustainable for families. So that's like a small initiative. Um, um, we try to control costs. Our, our tuition increases are below the rate of inflation. Um, we're very conscious of trying to keep those increases to a minimum, which means that we are always weary of increasing our running a lean institution as possible, um, and uh, and that that requires constant vigilance both year over year and in budget planning. The reality of 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 the way costs are are structured is even with um, there's always an increase in in staffing costs just because of the way that our collective bargaining agreement is, and and even there, the teacher increases are not necessarily. Large, they're also, I think, rounder below the rate of inflation. But all of that adds up to there's always going to be an increase of costs. We can't just keep adding to the parents in a in a in a in a, in a way that would meet those expectations. And yet, parents are spending a lot of money. It's there's just sort of a, there's an internal tension. Whether you're spending a thousand dollars on tuition or fifty thousand dollars on tuition, you've you've worked very hard. You're putting your own money in to something. And so there's something that you want to get out of it. There's an appropriate expectation. I'm, I'm, I'm very hesitant about notions of customer service. It makes it's complicated in schools where we are, are we serving the parents or serving the children? And if we're, it's about service to, not service of, but service to children. And it's also about caring for them and you pay me to care for your child. And that's, that's a very different dynamic and super complicated. So I, I think there's, there's notions of partnership and care and support, but also recognizing that there's the psychology of people is when you, when, when, you, when you take money out of your pocket and you give it to someone, you want something in return that's good for your child. And, and we want something that's good for, for your child. And sort of being realistic about what, what we can afford within that range of opportunities and experiences, what's not affordable, how individual um, schools are collective entities you know, in their structure. And yet we want to offer as you know, tightly as possible, understand who kids are individually and be able to service and support them. Um, those are not all. Those are going to be very competing. All these are very competing needs, and then trying to work them out in practice is not easy when trying to keep a real tight lid on expenses and and tuition. And we've been good on the tuition side over the last number of years with those very very small increases, which means we have to be very vigilant on the spending side. Um, so it's 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 not easy, but it's it's always the trying to do more with less. And do you see that as, you know, I've, I've spoken to some people who said the number one challenge in Jewish education is the cost of tuition. Like, do you, do you agree with that statement? I think it's probably the biggest challenge. Um, the other one, I believe, is that finding talented, committed Jewish educators there's lots of public school teachers, lots of well-trained teachers who've gone through um, York or U of T. 
they're not tons and tons, but they're they're quite a they they got they have a broader selection, but you know the, the there, uh, whereas when I was going through college, there was a very large cohort uh, at York University in the Jewish Education Program. There were programs in the states at YU and Pardes, um, at um, at Brandeis. The, the there those programs have almost all disappeared, hmm. and so. When you add our need for people who are Hebrew speaking as well, trying to find well-trained, knowledgeable, orthodox um, Jewish studies teachers is a rare commodity. And so for us to be able to deliver the experience that we want over the long term, I think is going to require some really real creative thinking on our part about um, how do we onboard people who are coming from you know different career backgrounds or making different career choices? How do we encourage or incentivize young young, bright, energetic people, the way, let's say, um, Teach for America does. I'm not saying use the model, but that idea that, you know, is there, is there a way of incentivizing young people to, to explore or try a Jewish education? Um, and that's not easy because education is not like a, I tried it one year and it didn't work or it did work. It's not like being a counselor. I mean, it's, it, it's a, it's a first, it's a five year project just to become a good teacher and a functional teacher. That's a big onboarding. Um, but even if you fi- try to find a way to condense it and support people through that, that requires, again, thinking about the support side, that requires me hiring and training administrators and staff who can support an untrained person or a poorly trained person through those early years of their career so they can f- not be crushed by the burden of that novelty and be well supported so they, so they can grow in their work. Um, and that's an investment that isn't like the obvious thing that you're spending on, money on when you want teachers for your kids. Why can't we just have a teacher in a classroom? Because then we won't have a teacher in your classroom. So how do I support that teacher? That requires, you know, training and support for an administrator or educational leader who can do that work. Um, and, and then we have this problem of, of, of finding Jewish educators. So is it the NCSY person who's now, you know, done that for a bunch of years and decides to move on? Is it the camp person who's done that for a bunch of years and wants to move on? Is it the Jewish professional from Federation who's done that for a bunch of years? and wants to move on as a person who was a lawyer and decided that's really not what they want to do. And they really want to do the thing they're passionate about, and that's teaching kids. Like, those are the, being able to support those people at those transition points. Um, how do you onboard them in a way that's healthy? How do you create infrastructure so that they can, they can function well in a school? How do you have the patience to do that? Like, those are, those are, the, those are challenges and both short-term and long-term, but I think, and, and building it in is not, is not cheap, easy, or obvious. It's interesting. I hadn't heard of that challenge before. Do you have any sense of why that is that, you know, Jewish educators are, I would say drying up, but the, the, the dearth of? Um, two suggestions. I don't know that I've never seen anyone say that there's a reason. One, I think, is the cost of living is too expensive, even on, let's say, a two-teacher salary or, you know, one, one and whatever the other person does. Um is China's very expensive, so people are deferring to either well-paying professions like medicine, finance, um, engineering, or, or uh, sorry, me- medicine, accounting, engineering, um, the law, or, or finance and business that have the potential for greater upside. And so there's like the real, there's a very real ceiling on the, uh, the salary of teachers with whatever other benefits it comes with. I mean, be, be able to put food on your table, buy a house, and function is, is a big one. So I think there's a disincentive at this point in time. Um, it's a tighter job market in some ways. Again, depends on which school you're looking at. Um, 
but I think it's I think there was a time where there was a ton of jobs and the system was expanding. The system is sort of at a bit of a stasis point. So even if in our individual school we had a need, there's a sort of stasis point in the system as a whole. But I think I think the the bigger driver is how much they get people get paid and what they're willing to, what they need to live in a Jewish life in North America. That's a big one. And the other, and again, this is anecdotal, but there's some resonance for me, is that the people who would have 20 or 30 years ago who are idealistic enough to go into education, and it is a very idealistic profession, who are idealistic enough, many of those people have made Aliyah. And that has sort of dried up the potential group of, of young, idealistic, energetic people who have other, in another gen, a generation ago, would have chosen to be Jewish educators, many of those have gone elsewhere, even if just the number of people who are my peers who have made Aliyah um, from the Jewish education sector over the last 10 years is enough to fill a, a day school. Um, and I think that that makes it much more challenging. Interesting. Uh, let's talk about, we're talking about education, let's talk about kids a little bit. What are some of the challenges, um, perhaps new challenges, that kids of today are confronting you know, one which comes to mind might be, you know, that we're in the smartphone generation, and I don't know if attention spans have decreased or what have you, but can you, can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Um, you know, is it true uh, that attention spans have, have decreased? What other challenges are they facing? Um, the specific attention span question, I don't have a good answer for. I don't have, like, clear data on whether that is true. What is very clear um, is they're distracting. Um, I mean, even if, so the, the changed attention span, if you have no social media around or if you have, don't have devices around, do they have a lower attention span? I'm not sure that they do. I don't know. Um, does the, you know, you know, FOMO, fear missing out in social media, create uh, social problems, distraction of phones, the over-communication over cell phones as opposed to face-to-face? -to -face? Those, I think, have, do have very real effects. I think there's a lot of data to show they have very real effects. They particularly have negative impacts on, on girls as they get, you know, 10 and above on rates of depression, anxiety, self-harm. Um, the, um, it, 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 it makes it friendship, the way in which friendships are formed, the expectation of friendships, I think, is also different. I think those are very, very real problems um, that, uh, that we have to think about as educators and what we want to do about it. I think it's, that's certainly a question we've had at our admin table for a while and trying to figure out how to bring that conversation to parents and equally been in conversation with B'nai Akiva schools as our most, you know, our largest, we feed most into that B'nai Akiva schools together, sort of trying to think together about what we want to do next about this. That I would say is the, if there's one large difference, that's the biggest one. Um, there's not like an other obvious one. That comes so up. can I ask what the policy is um, here in Netivot about smartphones, social media, etc.? Sure. How do you how do you deal with it? Um, so we have a no cell phone policy. The kids have to they, obviously the kids need, need to bring it because they take the bus or whatever other reason that they need a cell phone. They can have us. We don't we don't bar them personally from having cell phones. I think that's one of the things that we try to be careful about is what we mandate for in school is, and we try not to mandate things in people's personal lives, other than sort of the basic religious expectations that I talked about at the beginning. Um, but once they're in school, they have to keep it in their bag or their locker in a way that doesn't, you know, that, and they can't have it out during the day, um, and they can take it again when they, when they leave. Uh, that's also a challenge, like, you know, 
like any rule, there are kids who try for any number of reasons to get around it. They, you know, they fill in their bag, they, they take to the bathroom, like these things happen, and then they get taken away, and then their kids who lose their phone for a week or a month or can't take it to school at all. Um, that's sort of like the technical part of oversight of phones. That's not per se as what I worry about more. That's a distraction. My what I but they can't but because it's not explicit, it's less of a distraction um, in the in the daily life of schools. I worry more about the larger impact of on on rates of depression, anxiety, um, social impact, uh, social limitation, that kind of stuff. So you mean whether it's online bullying or. Uh, the truth is, we don't see very much of that, which doesn't mean it doesn't happen. I don't want to. I don't want to pretend like I. You know, we have, we only have we only know what people tell us. So that those that doesn't come up very often in terms of what's shared with us. And we do deal with things like that if they have happen amongst kids at school, but online we will that we do see that as part of our responsibility when it's brought to our attention. But that that's more rare. It's not that sort of very negative interaction. It's the kind of soft exclusionary, you know, things happen. It's the, it's the thinking, it's the, I, why didn't I get included in that group or on that? You know, I see all these, these girls um, hang out on Saturday night. I wasn't included in, in a, when, when you're looking at the pictures. Um, those are some general trends that, that I think are pervasive that also happen in our community. This, uh, because I think most kids, by the time they're getting to, they're getting to middle school, they're often having phones, um, smartphones with data. I think parents, it's a struggle. I, you know, I struggle with my kids, but trying to figure out how, how long can you delay um, allowing them to have cell phones with social media on it, what kind of social media they have on their phone, and delaying that as much as possible. Um, there's not, doesn't strike me, uh, both experientially or in terms of the, the research around this, that there's sufficient upside that it's worth it for kids at this age. By this age, I include anything up until high school, mid-high school. Um, I did the, the, the the detriments outweigh the benefits. And then you could have a separate conversation about whether there are lots of bad things about social media anyway that have nothing to do with this conversation for adults. But that's um, that's complicated. It makes me sound like I'm a like I'm a, a no-technology guy, and it's not that at all. It's just I think we are increasingly becoming aware of the challenges it poses for us, um, the kind of the not face-to-face -face conversations, what happens when you don't speak face-to-face, -face, what liberties people take. Um, how people feel about how they create their life virtually, which is very different from how they live it personally, and all that stuff that I think people are aware of at this point, but still coming to terms with, and that's all separate from the other crazy stuff that happens on Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg and blah, blah, blah. That's bigger than me. Right. How about society at large? How are you able to navigate that? I'm sure that's a challenge too, you know, um, when, I don't know, when we were growing up we're probably around the same age you know what was happening on i don't know family ties uh, wasn't the worst thing in the world but today obviously what the society around us is changing quite rapidly and a lot of things that are antithetical to a torah viewpoint are are you know really bearing down on us so how do you navigate that i don't have like an an awesome knock it out of the park answer to that question if i did um, <laughs> I'd probably be much more public about it. I think we struggle with it as parents as we struggle with it as a school. I think just as a parent, as parents need to take a very active, thoughtful role in their what they surround their kids with, what kind of 
books, music, culture, um, for positive and for negative. What they, you know, when I say expose, I'm not thinking about censorship even as much as opportunity. Um, and the school's the same way. We're, we are lucky that we have, we're sort of a, in the sense that we are a physical building, the kids are at most today have a, a semi-contained environment in which we can proactively offer um, a whole variety of experiences. Like, what kind of music do you hear when you come in the door? Um, l like, uh, how how loud and public are the are, are, are we when we say halal or brachot or what's the topic of conversation when we have an assembly and how's it presented and contextualized and lots and lots of both little and big things that allow us to try to create an environment as parents hopefully try to create an environment at home uh, of similar value that we that we practically want to offer so that we are we're creating something that kids want to be a part of and if you do that i think you're a lot of the way towards um, helping them feel positively about what they what what we offer them what what um, you know the, the beauty of Torah and uh, and it it makes it makes it a little bit easier over time with with the other things that they're exposed to so basically presenting a very compelling vision of of Jewish life such that they would choose that over. You know, I think so. Look, as you get as you get into schools and religious environments that are, for lack of a better word, more to the right, there are higher barriers um, to ex in, the, in exposure to popular culture, in terms of what's normative, and that makes it easier to drown out some voices, or at least drown out some voices and expose to others. We in the modern Orthodox community, there's a there's a there's an accepted greater exposure in general, both because it believes there are benefits, but accepting that there are some costs to that exposure. And But with younger kids, I would say um, we want to really work hard to create a strong foundation of love and love of God and love of Torah and love of Jewish experience and, and mitzvot that is that allows them to carry it forward in a very natural, organic way. And it, hopefully that then propels them to a place where then as they go on that longer journey, they... They do it from a positive place and a place of love that they want to feel attached to it and not pushing away from something. So I don't want to only focus on challenges. So maybe I'll, I'll just finish with this question. What do you think it is that the students at Netivot are doing really well? Um, is it, you know, is it math? Is it Ivrit? Is it love of Israel? What, what are some of those things that they're really excelling at? So it's, I have a bit of a different answer than the ones you suggested. Not that so those are not true. One of the things that I felt when I first came into the building that I hear most often and uh, that I think we're, we, we, we really excel at is we have kids who are happy to be here, happy in their Jewish experience, and happy in their learning. That doesn't happen, of course, every single day. Everyone has their moments, their days are stressful or hard, but... Overall, it's a happy, positive environment, um, and when you when you have that, it makes all things possible. And I think no matter what they're whatever, whatever there is they're learning or going through, each each has their you know I'm I'm more of a math person or a, or a, or a homish person or whatever their their particular thing is, in which I think we offer a, you know a really good experience. But that happiness is um, is all the difference in how they walk away from and what they're willing to take in and how they walk away from from school altogether.
Okay, that's a beautiful answer. Kids who are happy to be here. I think that's a, a fantastic goal. And, um, you know, we wish you continued success, both you individually and the entire school. Thank you for the opportunity, Richard. Thank you for being on the Corecast, Rabbi Dr. Cashman. Well, that's our show for today. I know it's so hard to say goodbye. So if you enjoyed the Corecast, you can find an archive of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and on the COR website at cor.ca. See you next time on the Corecast. <laughs>